uh, for some of you who perhaps have missed his uh, Sunday school class or missed his preaching in the evening service, I just need to give you a little instruction uh, about who he is, why he's here in our pulpit this morning worship. Jamie's a graduate of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He's also a PhD candidate in uh, Hebrew and other ancient languages uh, at Catholic University here. But he's preparing to be a minister, a PCA gospel minister. And he is actually uh, not only a pastoral intern at Wallace, he's formally in a pastoral internship process at Presbytery. And I'm his supervisor. (laughs) So if you have some constructive criticism... We are indeed blessed to have high-quality interns here at Wallace. And Jamie is among them. Jamie. The scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 13. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are diversities of service, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of works, but the same God who works all of them in everyone. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit a word of wisdom, but to another a word of knowledge according to the same Spirit to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another works of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discernment of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. The one and the same Spirit works all of these, apportioning individually to each one as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many parts, And all the parts of the body, being many, are one body. This is how it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink one Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would uh, open up your word to us today and that you would be at work in us by your Spirit, helping us to see Jesus and what he's done for us more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. I really hate group projects. I mean, I don't know, if some of you who are in school right now, maybe you have the same feeling. Uh, It's just so much goes wrong. Um, And I I know it's probably just, this is probably selfish pride and self-dependence speaking here, but I just don't like having to rely on all the other group members. Here's an example of a group project. On uh, November 10, 1999, the Mars Climate Orbiter uh, began its final approach toward Mars. Unfortunately, one team in that group project had produced a piece of code that used English units instead of metric units, you know, pounds instead of kilograms. And for that reason, all of the calculations were thrown off, the trajectory came in way too steep, and millions of dollars burned up in the atmosphere. See, that's the kind of thing that happens with group projects. 
What's, what's the problem there? What, what is it that makes those sorts of things so hard? Well, I think part of it is this problem of unity. The problem of everybody being on the same page. If, you don't, if not, everybody is not using the same units, then you're going to have problems. If everybody doesn't have the same expectations, you're going to have problems. Well, our passage today um, was first, uh, first written to a church that had a unity problem, had a lot of schisms and infighting. Um, and uh, it contains what Paul has to say about where unity comes from in the church. Um, and, you know, those who have heard me preach in the evening know I usually preach an Old Testament passage, but since we're uh, preparing as a church to look for a new pastor and thinking about who we are as a church, I thought I'd pick one of my favorite passages from the New Testament, which is about the church and how it's supposed to work. Um, in this passage, what we're going to see is that the church, in the church, we are united to each other by being united to God in his work. So we are united to each other by being united to God in his work. And uh, we're going to see that through three points. First, we're going to see that God's unity is the source of our unity. Second, we're going to see that diversity in the church is a result of God's free choice. And third, we're going to see that union with God is union with God's work. So we're going to see God's unity is the source of our unity, diversity in the church is the result of God's free choice, and union with God is union with God's work. Okay, so point number one. God's unity is the source of our unity. So Paul starts this whole passage off in the first three verses by grounding the unity of the church in the unity of the Trinity. Let's look at those verses. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are diversities of service, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of works, but the same God who works all of them in everyone. Now, do you see the Trinity in that verse? I think we might have to do a little work. So if you'll, if you'll, if you'll bear with me here, um, we might need to do a little detective work to realize that this is a verse about the Trinity. Um, so first of all, in verse 4, we have the Spirit, right? So that's the Holy Spirit. So that's clear. Um, then in verse 5, we have the Lord. And you may know that it's quite usual in the New Testament for Jesus to be referred to as the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord there is the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Uh, the last one is the hardest one, um, and it requires us to learn, uh, learn a rule that I think will be very helpful in understanding the New Testament. And that rule is often in the New Testament, when we just have the name God standing by itself, it actually refers specifically to the Father. Um, you can see that in a verse like Galatians 4.6, where Paul says, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. You see that? So Paul refers to the Father as, he says, God, and he says he sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. So there you have all three members of the Trinity. Um, so that can be a little confusing uh, if we're always used to thinking of the Father as being named the Father, but sometimes he's just called God. Just to be clear, that's not because the Spirit and the Son aren't God, um, but it's, uh, it's because uh, both the Spirit and the Son are from the Father, that the Father is called sometimes just God. Where does that all get us in this verse? Um, well, what we have to see is that these three verses are actually parallel. We have diversities in the church, 
But in every case, we have the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. In other words, Spirit, Son, and Father. The same God who is working them out in everyone. See, Paul wants us to see that the unity in the church comes from the unity that exists eternally in the Trinity. And what what does that unity look like? Well, it's the most pure and complete unity possible. When we say that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one, do we just mean they have the sort of unity of a baseball team? You know, the baseball team, you have the same goal, you're trying to win the game, trying to make runs, but you have different people who have different jobs. You know, you've got the pitcher, you've got the guy at first base, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, Well, no, that's that's, that's not quite a high enough unity. The unity in the Trinity is much deeper than that. The Father, Son, and Spirit are three different persons, but they are one being, one nature, one substance. And that means that wherever we find the Son, we find the Father and the Spirit there too. Whatever God the Son knows and wills and does, the Father and the Spirit are there too, knowing and willing and doing that thing. Um, It's a level of oneness that's far beyond anything that can exist in this created finite world. It's more than the oneness of husband and wife. It's even more than the oneness of your own body and soul. And you see, it's this unity that's the source of our unity as a church. Before we can become united to one another, before I can be united to you, and you can be united to him, and he can be united to her, before we can have that kind of unity, we, for each of us has to be united to God. And how does that happen? Well, it happens through Jesus. When God the Son takes on a human nature and puts on human flesh and is born as a human child, he unites himself to our nature. And uh, and Jesus, in uniting us to himself, also unites us to God. It's right there in verse 12. The body has many parts, but it is one body, and that is how it works with the body of Christ. When the one Spirit baptizes us into Christ... We are all joined into one body. Despite our great diversity, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, male or female, whether you're from Maryland or Virginia or D.C., um, whatever our different backgrounds, we are all united. Um, And then you have this very vivid imagery, right? All were made to drink one spirit. What does it mean that we have drunk the Holy Spirit? Does that seem like a, maybe a, a kind of strange image to you? Um, well, one of the important metaphors we see throughout the Bible is that the Spirit is like water. That's why I had us read those passages from Ezekiel for the Old Testament reading today. It's not just because Ezekiel is my father's favorite book and he'd be proud of me, but, just, but it's, act, it's actually relevant to what we're doing here. You have this promise in Ezekiel 36, right, that God's going to send his Spirit into the hearts of the people. He's going to give them hearts of flesh in place of their hearts of stone. And then, a few chapters later, in Ezekiel 47, you have this imagery, this picture that lays out the meaning of that verse. Um, So if you remember Ezekiel uh, Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel's being led by an angel through this vision of this new city that God is going to build. And uh, you see, as uh, as he's being shown the temple, he sees coming out from under the altar, there's a stream. And this stream gets deeper and deeper as it goes, and everywhere it flows, it brings new life to what is dead and barren. Fruitful trees grow up on every side. 
the waters teem with fish, uh, and even the Dead Sea is transformed into fresh water. You see, the work that happens in the temple at the altar, the sacrifices which atone for sin and purify God's people, they lead to this flood of life spreading out in all directions. So what does that, what does that vision mean? Well, we know the temple points forward to Jesus, right? Jesus himself says that his body is the temple. Uh, and the work of the altar points forward to Jesus' work on the cross, his sacrifice for sin. Um, and what about the water that flows from the temple? Um, well, if you remember John 7:38, it says, Jesus says, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And the very next verse says, Now he said this about the Spirit. So the water that comes out from the temple is the Spirit, who through the work of Christ is goes out into the world, into the hearts of people, and brings new life. I think Paul is picking up on all of this imagery in this passage. Because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, the Spirit comes to us. He brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He gives us a new heart and gives us faith and brings us to life in Christ. You see, you can't be united to Jesus without also being united to his Spirit. And this union is so intimate that Paul can describe it by saying all were made to drink one spirit. Children, have you ever been really, really thirsty? Yep. And you go to your parents and you say, Mom, I'm really, really thirsty. Can I have some water? Now, if your mom gives you some water, what do you do next? Do you pour it out on the ground? Do you pour it on your head? No. You drink it, right? Now, why is it that you have to drink it? Well, it's because water is not going to do you any good if it doesn't end up inside you, right? It, if it doesn't become part of you and become joined to you. Well, that's how it is with the Spirit. We need to be transformed from the inside out. And if that's going to happen, we need God's Spirit to enter into us, to unite himself to us, and to give us new life. And just as much as we are dependent on water to live, that's how dependent we are on the Spirit for spiritual life. And then we see that this union of each of us with God is also a union of each of us with each other. The Spirit doesn't just unite us to himself. Remember, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God, and therefore we're also united to the Son. And Jesus has a body, right? He has a physical body, but he also has the church. And so, if we're united to Jesus, we're also united to the church. As it says in verse 13, we are all baptized into one body, the church. So, the waters of baptism, which are this picture of this life-giving work of the Spirit, they don't just make me a new creation, they make me part of a people whom God is creating. So, you see, this is the source of where our unity lies. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoy a perfect unity. And through their perfectly unified work in creating the church, we also receive union with God and union with each other. In John 17, 21, Jesus prays for the church that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also might be in us. 
There is this mysterious sense in which we as believers are invited into the fellowship of the Trinity, so that as we are united to the one God, we're also united to each other. Okay, so, so let's stop. How do, we, how do we apply this point? Well, let's, let's start by saying that um, there are often divisions in the church. That's not just something that's true today when we look around and see lots of denominations. Uh, it's also, it also was true for Paul, right? We shouldn't think of the, uh, the early church, the New Testament church, as this wonderful place where uh, everything, uh, everybody was um, obeying God. Actually, there's a lot of divisions. It was a lot like the church is today. Um, God's work in uniting the church is not yet done, and it won't be until Jesus comes back. But what that means for us is that we can be tempted uh, in the midst of division to find false sources of unity, to try to find a unity somewhere else than in God, a unity based on something other than God. There are actually several different ways you can do this. One is to put a human authority in the place of God. We know that this was happening at Corinth, there were different factions developing. Paul says that there are some people going around saying, I belong to Paul. Some people are saying, I belong to Apollos. Some people are saying, I belong to Jesus. And then you've got, you know, these uh, people who are really trying to trump everybody by saying, well, I belong to Christ. So that definitely trumps you. In each case, though, these people are pursuing their own little identity marker within the church, their side, their team, and they're using it as the basis for rivalry. And that shows that they put something, their membership in their group, in the place of God, in the place of the church that God's made. So what might that look for, like for you? How might you be tempted to find the source of unity in something other than God? Well, here, here are a couple ways in which that could happen. Maybe it shows up in a harsh attempt to enforce human authority on someone who disagrees with you. could be your own authority, could be someone else's. When someone disagrees with you, you want to squash them and silence dissent rather than dealing gently with them. And so when you feel like somebody is challenging your authority or challenging the authority of somebody else, you react in a harsh way. Or maybe uh, your reliance on something other than God shows up in a need to fix the conflict. You know, if you can just love the other person well enough, then you can heal the conflict. Uh, if you, and if that fails, then you're undone. You place all of the burden for that person's salvation on your own shoulders. Um, or it could also look like conflict avoidance. Um, I think sometimes we mistake uh, fear, of fear of conflict for peacemaking. Um, but fear of conflict that leads us to refuse to stand up for God's truth just because we're afraid of the consequences is not the same as the peacemaking we're called to in the church. Um, you see, if the unity in the church comes from God in the final analysis, if we're called to work for unity but we're not the ones that ultimately make it happen, um, then this frees us from our need to enforce our own authority, our need to be the one who fixes it, um, and our need to avoid conflict. So that's the first point. True unity in the church comes from and depends upon union with God. So now point two, let's think about the diversity in the church. Where does this diversity come from? Well, diversity in the church comes from God's choice and plan. Verse 7 says, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And verse 11, The one and the same Spirit works all these, apportioning individually to each one as he wills. Okay, let's start with this basic principle. 
You are not God. Are we clear on that? Because nothing I say next will make sense if we don't have that down. One of the differences between you and God is that you are limited and finite and temporal, while God is unlimited and infinite and eternal. And so you as a creature, you can never limit or contain or exhaust the reality of who God is. Um, It's an important principle to keep in mind as we're talking about this idea of union with God, right? Um, God uniting himself to us doesn't mean that God merges with us in such a way that the boundary between the creature and creator is removed. Um, Perhaps you've heard of the idea of pantheism, the idea that God merges with the world so that God and nature are just different words for the same thing. That's not the biblical view of God. Rather, in God's union with us, God's distinctness as God and our distinctness as individuals is always preserved. And that means that God is always bigger than your thoughts about him and your experiences of him. Which means that the ways in which we know, experience, and imitate God are partial. Um, And that's what Paul is saying here. There are a diversity of gifts because there is a certain apportioning or dividing of the Spirit to each individual. As a result, we become parts of the body of Christ. So while it's true that every individual is created in the image of God, and so there's a common humanity, we also image God in different ways. Each of us has a piece of the puzzle, and only all together do we image God the way we were meant to. That's actually a difference we should stress between us and the unity that the persons of the Trinity have, right? The persons of the Trinity, they're not three separate parts which combine together to make God, like the mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Right? That's not how the Trinity works. If we said that, we'd be dragging down the unity in the Trinity to our level. Um, since then, each person of the Trinity would have a separate, different being which they brought to the equation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're not each a limited part of God, but each of them is the whole God. This is a unity that's only possible for God and not for the creature. Now, although a creature cannot ever capture the full majesty of God, it is possible for us to reflect this majesty in part. And that's what Paul tells us is God's plan for the church. Why are there a bunch of different people rather than just a bunch of the same person, right? Um, Why didn't, you know, maybe you've wondered that yourself, right? Why didn't God just make a bunch of me, you know? The world would just operate so much more smoothly if everybody thought and acted just the way I did. Well... Because God has decided that that's not the way it's going to be. Look at, look at the passage, verse 7. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So this participation is a gift. It's something that God chooses to give us. And in verse 11, it says, apportioning individually to each one as he wills. So it depends on the will of God, his choice and decision. By the way, Paul mentions a lot of different gifts in verses 8 to 10. Uh, many of which are controversial because Christians disagree about whether they continue or not. Um, I'm just not going to get into that in this sermon. Uh, that, that's for another sermon. If we were doing a series through these, through these chapters, then I'd have to talk about it. But for the purposes of this sermon, I'm just going to pass that by. What I want us to focus on is the fact that God has willed that there be a diversity of gifts. So what, is, what does this truth mean for us? Well, first of all, it means that there is diversity in the church because God has put it there. All favoritism is ruled out, whether that's on the basis of race, sex, wealth, talent, gifting. When we show hatred toward another human being through racism or sexism or because they are poor, we're showing a contempt for God who made them in his image. 
and designed for them to be here. Also, this this truth means that self-dependence is not an option. You only have a piece of the puzzle. You can't make it on your own in the Christian life, nor could you make it if everybody was like you. You know, Paul goes on in this letter to imagine what that would look like if if a whole human body was just eyes or just feet. Kids, can you imagine that? What if you had somebody who was just eyes? That was their only body part, just a bunch of eyes. Or how about just like a bunch of feet, you know? How would that work for them? Would they, would they, be, able to, uh, would they be able to play a game of baseball? Well, no, because they couldn't see the ball. They might be able to run really well, but they couldn't see the ball, they couldn't hit the ball, right? The point Paul is making that is that the human body works because we have a lot of different body parts. We have eyes, we have hands, we have feet. Well, that's also how it works with the body of Christ. God has made it so that we need each other in all our diversity. This applies especially to gifting. I mean, I find this challenging personally because I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I find it hard to accept that there are people who are good at things that I'm not good at. I look at somebody who's good at something I'm not. Take empathy, for example. You know, someone who just really has people and all their emotions figured out. Um, And I think, rather than saying, wow, isn't it cool how God has gifted them in that way, I think, if only I was as good at that as they are. I want to do it all, and that is not healthy. It's, self, it's sinful self-dependence. Another way this shows up is when you're gifted in a way that somebody else is not, right? The other way around. Um, isn't it hard to be patient uh, when you just get something intuitively, but they just can't seem to do it? Um, but you know that there are there are giftings in which the situation would be reversed, right? Don't wish that everybody else in the church had the same gifting as you. It would not be an improvement on God's plan. All the different people in this church with their different backgrounds and different gifts, God's put them here for a reason, and we need to submit to God's wisdom. We need to see each other as God's gifts to each other. God has put this person in the church so that their unique gifting can help me and so that my gifting can help them. So that's point number two. Diversity in the church is a result of God's choice. Finally, point number three, union with God means being united to God's work. Um, To get into this point, we can ask the question, what are these gifts of the Spirit for? What is their purpose? Well, we see it already in verse 7, for the common good. And Paul's going to go on to insist that we use our gifts for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. There seems to have been a problem at Corinth where people were not using their gifts to help other people, but were using them to aggrandize themselves. Um, So Paul says in 14.12, Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. And in 14.26 he says, Everything is to be done for building up. Um, We find a similar idea in Ephesians 4.16 where Paul, again, compares the church to a body that grows and builds itself up, and he says it builds itself up according to the working of each individual part, right? Just like if one part of your body stops working, it can have disastrous effects on the whole, the church is most healthy when every single part is building all the other parts up through their own working. So God has given us these gifts in order that we might join him in his work of building up the church. And this too has its foundation in the Trinity, right? In the first three verses, Paul isn't just emphasizing 
the unity of the Trinity, but also their unity in their work. It's the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God working. You see, just as we can say that because Father, Son, and Spirit are one, that means that wherever the Spirit is, there the Father and the Son are as well. We can also say that whatever the Spirit is doing, the Son is doing, and the Father is doing as well. They are unified in their work. And we find that doctrine, that's why I had the Gospel reading for today. In John 14, 10 to 11, Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In other words, how can Jesus' disciples know that Jesus and the Father are one? Because the works Jesus does are the works the Father does. They are united in their work. Not only that, but if you look in this passage, he makes a point very similar to Paul as he goes on. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And why is that? Well, because the Spirit will dwell in them. In verse 17 he says, you know him, for he, the, speaking of the Spirit, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. What does this all mean? When we're united to God, we are also united to his work. Perhaps you actually remember that uh, Mike pointed out in the sermon a few weeks ago on 1 Thessalonians 3 that Paul calls Timothy God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. And what a privilege that is to be given a part in God's work in the church. And I don't think Paul means that just to apply to Timothy. Uh, I think it's true of every Christian, that every Christian in their work has, is, has this amazing privilege of being a part of what God is doing in the world. God's given us the gifts of the Spirit for this very purpose. Um, here again, it's important to remember that our work is only a little part of what God is doing. Just as union with God doesn't mean we are one substance with him, right? In the same way that the Son is. Um, so, uh, so also, God's work is always bigger than what we are doing. Sometimes you hear it, I don't know if you've heard this said before, God has no hands but our hands and no feet but our feet. Right? Meaning that, you know, God has to work through us. You know, is, is that right? No, it's not. It's not true. God's perfectly free to work with or without us. He's not dependent on human means in any way. There are plenty of, example, plenty of examples in the Bible where God acts entirely without human help. Nevertheless, it is true that God has chosen to center his work on the church and the weak, sinful human beings who are a part of it. This is actually a really amazing reality. Why would God choose to display his glory in weak clay jars like us? And yet he has. You know, I think you see an example of this in Paul's own conversion. Do you remember the story of that? Um, Paul is bent on persecuting the Christians and stamping out Christianity. And he's headed to Damascus to do just that. And while he's on his way, what happens? Jesus shows up in a blinding light and knocks him off his donkey. So much for no hands but our hands. And yet it's really interesting. Does Jesus explain the gospel to him? Well, no, he doesn't. He just knocks him off his donkey, strikes him blind, and then tells him to go into the city and wait. Now, this will really test your Bible knowledge. Do you guys remember what happens next? This is the less famous part of the story. Well, God sends a man named Ananias, not even an apostle, just, just a regular Christian as far as we know, to go to Paul and to heal him of his blindness 
so that he might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know, that is when Acts says Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. Not when the risen Lord shows up to him and knocks him off his donkey, but when this average Christian has been sent to uh, show God's love to him. And there's something so striking about that, that Jesus chooses, Jesus could have done it all himself, but he chooses to use this regular Christian in his plan for the salvation of Paul. This is a great privilege we're given. God has given us these gifts, certainly not to make ourselves greater, not to make us proud and self-sufficient, but so that we can learn to depend upon and help one another. It is so we can display God's holiness, and most importantly for Paul, show God's love to each other. At the same time, the fact that we are united with God's work in his work should remind us that God's work is always primary and foundational for our own. Um, sometimes you hear an analogy like that God's grace and human effort are like two wings of a plane in salvation. You need both of them. Or that salvation is 100% God and 100% us. Um, now it's not wrong to say that human effort is important, right? We should all be striving for righteousness. But these analogies make it seem like God and us have an equal partnership. Uh, and that's not the way the Bible presents it. God's work is foundational. Listen to how Paul puts it in Philippians 2, 12-13. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Paul does tell them to work. He tells them to obey. But behind all of this human working and obeying, is God's work. Both in our willing and our desiring a thing, and also the working out of that desire, God is the one, uh, we are dependent on God. God is the one who works faith in our hearts. He's the one who gives us the will when we, to do something right. And God is the one who makes us hope in his promise. He's the one who makes us act out of love towards others. And we should also add that when we fail to obey God, when we don't work, and don't make an effort and don't obey, God is still at work. God's work continues even when ours does not. God never fails. He never gives up. He never needs to sleep or rest. God is always at work. So how do we apply that third point to ourselves today? Well, I think this truth is encouraging in two ways. First of all, it's a great encouragement to work for the kingdom of God. It reorients our working, right? We don't need to work to earn our place with God through works righteousness. We've already been united to God in Christ freely of grace, not of our own works. But now we're in, we are invited to work with God for God's purposes in the world. What an amazing calling that is, to get to be part of what God is doing in the world. When we realize the magnitude of what we've been given in our union with God, the fact that we have not only been given the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but that God himself has been given to us as the primary gift, it should lead us to worship, praise, and grateful work for God's kingdom. It should lead us to love the diversity that God has put in the world, because God too delights in it, and long to see that diversity of humanity all gathered together and united in Jesus. And there's a second encouragement here as well, an encouragement for when we fail. Uh, maybe some of those moments have occurred to you as you've listened to those sermons. You know, Maybe there are ways this week 
that you can think of where you have not obeyed God, where you have not done God's work, where you have sinned and turned away. Well, there's an encouragement for you too here. Um, because we will fail. There will be sin and there will be, there will be divisions in the church. And if we lose sight of what God is doing, if we just see our failure, then we're going to lose heart. But if we see that the unifying of this church is first and foremost God's work, we'll be encouraged by the fact that God is still working even when we are not. God is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you've been united to God in Jesus, then your failures are not enough to thwart God's plan. They never have been throughout the history of the church. There's been a lot of sin and a lot of failure, and yet God's gracious plan and work in the church goes on. God is at work in you, and the work that he has begun, he will faithfully bring to completion. We can be content to do our little part, imperfectly and sinfully as we do it, and trust that God is the one who will complete the work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gifts of your Son and your gift of your Holy Spirit to us. It's not something we could earn, it's not something we deserve, but it's something you give to us freely and graciously uh, because of your goodness and mercy. Um, and we thank you for this great truth that you are at work in us and that you have invited us into uh, your work in the world. Help us this coming week to uh, remember our smallness, to not, uh, to not be selfish, to not be prideful, to not seek our source of unity in ourselves or outside ourselves in anything other than you. Help us to depend upon you and help us to remember uh, this awesome truth that you have committed to your work in the church, that um, behind, and, behind and above and even despite of all our efforts, you are building your church and you will perfectly unify and sanctify it on the day that Jesus Christ comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.